Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The obsessive-compulsive superegos mandated two segments today, though in a departure from the standard, the second has two participants. We'll hear from Behind the News regular Anatole Levin on the two wars dominating the headlines, and then from the economists Ileana Kuziemko and Suresh Naidu on class differences in preferred economic policy. I've been pressing Anatole Levin into service a lot lately, but there are a few analysts who can rival his clarity and knowledge. With Israel extending a month-long reign of terror in Gaza and increasing talk of a stalemate in Ukraine, accompanied by some sotto voce mentions of the possibility of rethinking the wisdom of continuing the war, his clarity and knowledge are needed. Levin is the director of the Eurasia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in D.C. In the 1980s and 90s, Anatole covered the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and the wars in Afghanistan, Chechnya, and the Southern Caucasus for the Financial Times and the Times of London. Anatole Levin. There are a lot of uh, comparisons circulating of Ukraine and Gaza. What do you make of those comparisons? These are are two quite separate wars for completely different reasons. There is no uh, alliance between Russia and Hamas. Uh, Russia has always wanted to be an ally of the United States and Israel against Sunni Islamist terrorism and extremism, from which Russia itself has has suffered terribly. So I think it has been a a fundamental mistake of the Biden administration to try to link the two, although, of course, this was above all for domestic political reasons to get the, the Republicans to agree to continued massive aid to Ukraine. One thing, though, that they do have in common, as David Sanger pointed out in a piece for the New York Times, and they have that in common with a good many previous conflicts as well, is the inability of the United States to actually control its clients. I read that and I thought, well, what if Biden just said to Netanyahu, no more F-16 parts? Yep. How much pressure are they really putting on them more than just a tough phone call? Well, they're not, and I don't. I don't even believe that the phone calls have been tough. But I mean, that, as we all know, is above all for domestic American political reasons, and you know, no doubt Biden and Blinken's own personal feelings as well. Of course, I mean, the truth of the matter is that the the United States could impose its will on on Israel very easily, indeed. But here, of course, you're not just talking about. An administration, you're talking about a Congress, which is, you know, for various reasons, overwhelmingly pro-Israeli. You're talking about Biden's fear that the Republicans and above all Trump would exploit any pressure on, on Israel against Biden in next year's elections. Although, on the other hand, you know, they haven't figured in the, the demographic changes in America 
uh, over the past um, few generations. I mean, it's pretty clear that Biden's stance on Gaza has lost in Michigan next year and very notable, as indeed, you know, people have been saying for many, many years, the change in the composition of the American population will eventually lead to, to, to changes in, in attitudes to certain issues of, of foreign affairs. It's just that, you know, the US Congress, of course, is, has a long, long way to go before it catches up with this reality. It seems that a lot of the established Jewish organizations are having trouble dealing with the fact that a lot of younger Jews are just not on board with the Zionist project. Uh, and that the rhetoric around it is just getting absolutely hysterical. What do you make of that? Yes, um, there is. There was always, of course, a, a degree of extreme ruthlessness in the way in which the Israeli lobby um, you know, imposed its will in America. And, you know, in part, of course, understandably, given the nature of the initial Hamas attack. Uh, but yes, I mean, recently, the, the, uh, there has been, you know, a certain air of desperation or hysteria in some of the rhetoric. And of course, also the pressure used to some extent to be, a, you know, a mailed fist in a velvet glove. Uh, but now when it comes to, you know, getting people dismissed from their positions, and by the way, in Europe too, um, trying to actually shut down demonstrations, the degree of, you know, overt intimidation is, well, it's become open. Why is the U.S. so intransigent in support of Israel? Go back to the Cold War days. It made sense to fight uh, Arab nationalism or the, the global communist threat. But now what is the tr strategic reason, the imperial logic behind this single-minded and intense support for Israel? There is no strategic reason. It, it is purely about aspects of American domestic politics and, you know, and tradition. I mean, obviously, this isn't by any means simply about the, the Jewish minority in America. As you've pointed out, younger Jews, are, are in many cases, are not so interested in the Zionist project. And of course, there are many, many leading Jewish critics of Israeli policy in America, and of course, in Israel itself. But there is also, uh, of course, and this has a, a long, long history, going back to the very origins of Old Testament Protestantism. There's a long history of the attachment of uh, sections of the, the Protestant, especially the Protestant fundamentalist tradition in America to Israel. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's all essentially about American domestic politics and domestic political culture, because... You know, the notion of Israel as, a, as an ally, uh, as a strategic ally, is, is frankly absurd. You know, whenever America has gone to war in the Muslim world, Israel has had to be told to keep out of the way so as not to infuriate uh, Muslim opinion. You know, maybe Israel will now have U.S. bases, but it's never had them in the past. Israel, of course, cooperates with the U.S. on counterterrorism. But then, you know, there's a very strong argument that uh, Israel itself has played a huge part in um, in generating support for terrorism in the Muslim world. So, no, I don't think this is uh, about strategy at all. And um, by the way, as you said, I mean, in the Cold War, yes, and that argument was used all the time. We need Israel because the Soviet Union has allies in the Middle East. Israel is our, our only firm ally you know, really reliable ally in this in this region. Uh, but of course, um, with the end of the Cold War, that should have disappeared. And 
you know, there is this weird situation in which Russia and the US are fighting together uh, against ISIS in Syria. Uh, Israel is carefully not attacking Russia, um, which it regards has regarded in the past as a kind of partner, but is attacking you know Hezbollah. So clearly, there is n- no clear cut conflict with Russia in the Middle East in the way that there was with the Soviet Union, which makes the role of Israel in that regard essentially irrelevant. Well, how do you read Israel's goals in this furious assault? Uh, it looks to me like they're trying to destroy any possibility of Gaza reemerging as a functioning society after this is all over. I mean, they've been certainly brutal in the past, but now like destroying the infrastructure, bombing hospitals and universities, it really looks like uh, they look to uh, transform Gaza into, I don't know what, an empty land for, for uh, settlers? I don't know. What's their plan here? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not privy to Netanyahu's thinking. First, of course, there is simply a desire for revenge. Uh, You know, Israeli society got a terrible shock. Netanyahu and his government suffered a very severe humiliation. And yeah, I mean, they just want revenge for that. But beyond that, um, and there is clearly a hope of, of punishing the population of Gaza so savagely that they will never again support major terrorist attacks on on Israel. So that is the second thing. Now, of course, I don't know really, given Netanyahu's position, whether it makes any sense to talk about the extreme right in Israel anymore. I mean, the extreme right seems to now be the mainstream of this government. But there have been, you know, several voices, even by certain Israeli ministers from the extreme right, uh, basically calling for ethnic cleansing drive the population of Gaza, even the population of the West Bank, out and you know, drive the population of Gaza in, into Egypt. Now, that would bring Israel into direct conflict with the United States because, of course, uh, Egypt is also an American client state and ally. Uh, in some respects, a more important one than Israel, it must be said, uh, and with a very oppressive uh, and unsuccessful and fragile regime uh, in Egypt. And to to do that, to drive the population of Gaza into Egypt, uh, Israel would basically have to go to war with with Egypt, which would risk bringing the entire American order, if you can call it an order, in the Middle East down in in ruins. So um, there, I think you will see serious American pressure to prevent that. Uh, But I mean, short of that, it's not really clear to me or many other people uh, just what it it is that uh, the Israeli government is aiming at in in Gaza, other than simply punishment and revenge. You mentioned um, the intense support for Israel in Europe. Where is that coming from? Well, uh, it's coming from subservience to the United States in part. It has been obvious to some of us for a very long time that if Europe makes a bitter enemy of Russia, uh, then, of course, Europe is going to be more or less unconditionally dependent on the United States. Because as we have heard off the record, I heard it again off the record from a a European ambassador yesterday, that there is no chance of, of Europe being able to replace the United States, for example, as the, the chief backer uh, of Ukraine. Uh, 
Uh, on the other hand, of course, aiming at a, a settlement with Russia would split Europe down the middle. Uh, well, as they used to say in Scotland, he who pays the piper, he will call the tune. This means that you simply have to bow to US pressure uh, on other issues. Uh, and then, of course, there is the, well, it gets very complicated, but the growth of fear of, of mass migration has, of course, become mixed up with specific hostilities to Islam, uh, which tend proponents uh, in the direction, of course, of support for Israel. And then there are specific issues. Uh, to some extent today, um, Britain, for example, actually has an Indian government in terms of its composition. Well, in uh, you know, in, in India and in the Hindu diaspora, there is, to put it mildly, uh, not a great deal of affection for Muslims, uh, and least of all for people viewed as as Islamist terrorists. But of course, this, in a way, is even more dangerous for Europe than it is for the United States. Uh, not just because Europe is much more vulnerable to is Islamist terrorism, but of course also because Europe has much, much bigger Muslim populations and growing Muslim populations who also have a quite different class and ethnic structure from those of the United States. So these stances in Britain, France and Germany are really pointing, I fear, in the direction of serious, serious social conflict in future. I'm speaking with Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute. We're going to turn to Ukraine. Um, we're seeing a lot of stalemate talk now. It seems like official spokespeople and their stenographers have been, have been uh, preparing us for this for a while, but it getting, it's getting more open. Is it the, the failure of the offensive that uh, is prompting this, or is there a real long-term rethink going on? Uh, what do you see? Well, I think it's both. It's been extremely striking that you know, General Zaluzhny, uh, the Ukrainian chief of staff, who in the past, uh, all his statements suggested an ultra hard line position. And it was even suggested that if Zelensky tried to, to make peace, Zaluzhny would lead some kind of revolt against him. Uh, now their, their positions have, have reversed. And I think the reason is, is simply that the Ukrainian military has realized that it, it cannot break through. It can't break through the Russian lines. Uh, but not just that, but this being so, time is not on Ukraine's side. Even if they get the additional 60 billion in aid from the United States, that is basically for one year. What happens after that? In the long run, uh, Russia's resources are far greater and always will be far greater than Ukraine's. And also, while the, the, the West can provide sophisticated weaponry to Ukraine, it can't provide soldiers. And something that was already becoming apparent when I was in Ukraine in, in the spring is, is that uh, you know, Ukraine is beginning to suffer really serious manpower shortages. So it seems that the, the, the Ukrainian army, or at least parts of its high command, uh, have come to the conclusion that, um, I mean, at least provisionally, they will always hope to recover the land that they've lost at some point in the long run, uh, but that it might well be better to go for a ceasefire now out of the fear that otherwise Ukraine might lose much more in future. Uh, but uh, according to 
this piece in NBC over the weekend, Zelensky himself uh, is still absolutely dedicated to the idea of complete victory. And it could be that, you know, we in the West have played a part there, uh, as we as the US did previously with um, Mikhail Saakashvili in Georgia um, before the 2008 war. This endless building up of Zelensky, who, of course, in many ways is a very admirable man, but this endless building him up as the new Churchill, as the greatest leader of our time, as a as a tremendous hero, it may well have gone to his head. I mean, very understandably, it would go to anybody's head. Ukraine, it just seems to be running out of people. Is that the issue? Well, that's part of it. Their casualties have been enormous, uh, and their population, um, especially after so many, you know, have fled to the West, uh, is uh, barely a quarter that of Russia's. Uh, and I saw uh, evidence already when I was there, even before the offensive, of the of the number of, of casualties that they've suffered. And they just, they, they can't afford to go on suffering that level of casualties. Do you see like war wounded in the streets, people missing limbs? And such? Not in the streets, but you know, I was in hospital there and you certainly saw it in the in hospitals and clinics. What is Washington thinking about this? They must see these facts, uh, uh, but are they in so far they don't know how to get out or um, are they trying to look for a way out? Well, I, I think, you know, part of the problem is an old, old one. You know, frankly, American officials cannot stop talking. They have to feel this absolute imperative to make these huge overblown statements about, you know, the, the Biden, the, the existence of democracy hangs on what happens in Ukraine, the future of freedom. You know, if Russia isn't completely beaten in Ukraine, it will invade Poland. And, and you know, it's all absolute nonsense, frankly. But having spent the, the best part of two years talking in these terms, it's basically they've talked themselves into a corner and now don't know how to talk themselves out of it again, even though, you know, as recent articles have indicated, there is now uh, an awareness that they need to do so. so but the, the result, and this also, of course, goes back to uh, the you know, repeated endless statements that any kind of peace agreement or ceasefire is purely a matter for the Ukrainians, is that the Biden administration seems now to be uh, basically asking the Ukrainians to think about moving towards a ceasefire. But there are two problems here. The first is that, you know, it's clear that the Ukrainian elites are, are deeply, deeply divided on this subject. And to get Ukraine to the point where it, it does propose a ceasefire uh, will take a long time. It will also take, you know, even more, of course, for Zelensky and his government than the US. They have passed decrees making any negotiations with Russia illegal. Um, they have made repeated statements saying um, uh, there can't even be, you know, not even a provisional agreement leaving any territory, even informally, de facto, in Russian hands. They too have put themselves in, in a position where changing their stance will be seriously humiliating. They'll need time for that probably. And, you know, as I've said, time on the battlefield is not on their side. But the other point you see is that the, the Russians now, uh, from what I gather, uh, equally see that feel that time is on their side. And to get them to agree to a ceasefire, 
uh, it would take a direct agreement with the United States because only the United States can deliver other things that Russia regards as essential. Uh, Above all, of course, uh, a treaty of neutrality, guarantees about future military deployments. Russia will only negotiate with the United States on that basis. So for Washington to say, oh, this is all up to the Ukrainians, just is not likely to to, to bring about an early agreement. Uh, And if the analysis is correct, that time is on Russia's side, an early agreement is what we need uh, for fear that otherwise, you know, Ukraine could suffer a much bigger defeat in future, which would also, of course, be a major humiliation for the United States. This idea it's up to Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine wouldn't last a week without USAID. I think it would last more than a week. Um, well, the, I'm exaggerating, but you know. yeah, but I mean, you know, the the Ukrainian military is still very highly motivated and determined. And also, you have to remember that it's clear that shifts in military technology over the past generation have really favoured the defensive. But it, it's absolutely clear that Ukraine couldn't sustain the, the the war for for long. So, of course, America has a say, it must have a say. I mean, uh, also, if if $65 billion on top of what's been given already doesn't give America a say, well, (laughs) what on earth does? And finally, of course, um, you know, America is running considerable risks. Uh, There have been two recent scenarios, um, three, I think, actually, one by Rand, one by Princeton, and one by the nuclear threat initiative, uh, you know, indicating the, the the ways in which, not by Russia, you know, suddenly reverting to nuclear weapons, but how, you know, a series of accidents and overreactions on both sides uh, could, in fact, bring us to the brink of nuclear war, uh, which, of course, would involve the annihilation of the United States. I mean, the, that ought to give a, a U.S. administration uh, a say in what happens in. Ukraine. I mean, for example, the Nuclear Threat Initiative posited, you, you know, something which could happen any time. It very nearly did happen with a British uh, aeroplane over the Black Sea, in which the Russians uh, unintentionally, a mistake by a junior officer, shoot down an American reconnaissance aircraft, kill 35 Americans. Well, you can see how things could escalate from there. What kind of deal could emerge at this point? And is it much different from what could have been done a year and a half ago, minus all the casualties? It's different in that I think there is no way that the Russians will withdraw now from the additional territory that they've taken. Because unless you get a formal peace settlement uh, in which Ukraine, the United States, Europe recognize Russian sovereignty over Crimea and the eastern Donbass, the Russians will always be afraid that at some point in future, the Ukrainians will attack again with US backing. Um, And their land bridge to Crimea uh, is essential from that point of view, uh, you know, from a a purely military aspect. So the the point is that it, it would have to involve, I think, a ceasefire along the existing battle lines, leaving this territory de facto, not de jure, in Russian hands. Uh, And then for an actual peace settlement, um, well, then I think one is definitely talking about a Ukrainian treaty of neutrality. And when it comes to the territorial issues, various people, um, including from 
the global south, uh, but also U.S. experts like um, Tom Graham, former U.S. diplomat, uh, have said that the the only way of reaching uh, a territorial agreement which preserves democratic and international and legal legitimacy uh, is to have a referenda in the disputed territories uh, under United Nations supervision. I mean, that would be very difficult and it would take years because, of course, there's the whole question of refugee return. Uh, but I think if there is any chance of an actual formal settlement, then those are its contours. And then finally, the current wars uh, have, uh, it looks to me, shown some limits to U.S. power. The U.S. has been able to uh, enlist the uh, the uh, alliance of Europe uh, on both Ukraine and Israel, but not so much the global South. Um, so, what is uh, what are these last year or so tell us about uh, the status of U.S. power in the world? Well, I think it shows that beyond Europe, uh, and of course, a couple of close allies and very important ones, Japan and South Korea, U.S. influence is simply not as as great as it was. That the United States is no longer. Uh, the sole economic superpower. Um, Clearly, its ability to bring military coercion to bear is limited. And, uh, you know, if the US extends its sanction uh, policy much further, (laughs) it'll basically cut off its own trade with most of the world. Uh, So countries do feel much greater freedom of action. Uh, And also, um, you know, there is a considerable matter of national pride and this applies even, you know, in, in countries like India, uh, which in principle wish to be U.S. partners, but they want to be partners, uh, not, you know, subordinate allies. As an Indian diplomat once said to me, we're not Denmark. And <laughs> it's not just that, you, you, you know, that, that India and Brazil and Indonesia will, um, you know, defend and South Africa will defend what they take to be their vital national interest when it comes to, you know, for example, energy trade with Russia. But, you know, especially, you know, since the Ukraine war began, you've had so much commentary from the global south saying that the West only really cares about civilians being killed and atrocities when it's whites being killed. Well, of course, what's happening in Gaza uh, where, by the way, you know, more civilians have now been killed uh, by Israel in less than three weeks than, you know, according to the United Nations, Russia has killed in Ukraine in 20 months. Well, obviously, this this is noticed in India and Brazil and, in, you know, across the whole of the non-white world. And they don't like it. And, you know, they do see it as, as reflecting, um, at the very least, a soft form of, of racism. And that offends them, very understandably. That was Anatole Levin, director of the Eurasia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Like the one who warned me 
my days after rain and warm my breath. My life's blood screaming empty. She cries. You don't get me high. It can only make me cry. You're a veteran day poppy. That was some of Captain Beefheart doing Veterans Day poppy. Now, popular attitudes towards economic policy. My next guests, Ileana Kuziemko and Suresh Naidu, are two of the three authors of a new National Bureau of Economic Research paper that explores how working-class voters prefer what's called pre-distributionist policies, like protectionism and higher minimum wages, to redistributionist policies, like progressive taxes and social benefits preferred by the affluent. This classification leaves out those who are perfectly fine with high and increasing inequality. Pre-distributionist policies were popular some time ago, but fell out of fashion with the rise of the New Democrats in the 1980s and 1990s. We talk about the New Democrats' leading organization, the DLC, without spilling it out. It stands for the Democratic Leadership Council, founded by a group of centrists in 1985 that rose to prominence with Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Their major passion was shedding the politics of the New Deal and Great Society that the party was identified with from the 1930s through the 1970s. In the first question, I mentioned Jagdish Bhagwati. Bhagwati is a fervent free trader who teaches economics and law at Columbia. That interview ran on this show in April 2004. You can find it on my archive, which you can discover by googling Doug Henwood behind the news. Ileana Kuziemko is a professor of economics at Princeton, and Suresh Naidu is a professor of economics at Columbia. Ileana Kuziemko and Suresh Naidu. I was intrigued by your title, Compensate the Losers. I recall years ago interviewing Jagdish Bhagwati, who said, liberalize trade, people will lose, and we should compensate them. And I challenged him on that because I said, you always say that, but you never actually advocate for it. What are you referring to with the title? I think, you know, essentially uh, similar ideas that trade is, is probably the example where you hear it the most, where there should be so much surplus created, and then we can go and compensate the losers. There's sort of two issues you could take with that. One is that actually, especially in the U.S., that doesn't seem to happen in a very robust manner. The programs that we have, uh, they do exist, but they tend to be pretty small. So that's one point. But the point, I think, uh, in our paper is that that's actually not so popular with the people who might turn out to be the losers from these policies, that there tends to be a strong educational gradient, meaning that less educated people and more educated people have significantly different views. And those types of policies where, you know, we're going to let there to be liberalization of the market and then shore up the losers in the end, so to speak, you know, losers in quotes, tend to be more popular with educated voters. Alternatively, policies that try to shape the economy before you do taxes and transfers, being more protectionist is an example, minimum wage, uh, union power. Those are not egalitarian policies that work through taxes and transfers, but they're policies that at least their goal is to have a more egalitarian earnings distribution before taxes and transfers. That tends to be more popular with less educated voters. The paper is less about can you compensate the losers, but this is more the political efficacy of that idea. So what you bring to the party is this uh, concept of pre-distribution versus redistribution. What is this distinction? What kind of policies uh, fall under each label? They're both sort of visions of egalitarianism in some sense. One is uh, redistribution, which has been the default Certainly among economists, I think there's sort of a default sense that we should always be letting 
things um, be as free as possible in terms of not having a lot of regulation in the market. And then in the end, we can shore up some of the differences so they're not too egregious. The economist thinking is that we need to let the marketplace work its magic. And if that produces losers, well, we can take care of them. Is that the way the economists think? That's not an unfair characterization. Of course, you know, economists would say, yes, with some constraints, we believe that there's going to be externalities, there's market failures. So, you know, you're sure you can regulate in terms of handling the market failures. But yeah, after that, you can have an egalitarian instinct. There's nothing that economists say is bad about that. We have a whole field called public finance that talks about redistribution. But yeah, it should be done after. Afterwards would be not a not an unfair summary. What we bring to the table, as you say, is showing that that basic idea, if you had to pick a pre-distribution, so instead of saying we're going to shore everybody up with taxes and transfers, our aim is going to have is going to be for a pre-tax and transfer earnings distribution that's more egalitarian. It turns out that throughout uh, the past 80 years at least, that is remarkably more popular among less educated respondents to surveys. The tax and transfer emphasis, there's not as strong an educational gradient, but if anything, it seems to be more preferred by educated voters. So in some sense, you know, if we're talking about losers from trade or automation or other forms of technology, which tend to be the less educated voters, they in fact would prefer a system that did the egalitarian policymaking in the pre-distribution sense. So instead of having, you know, tax and transfers for the losers later, they seem to strongly prefer and historically have preferred a more interventionist, pro-domestic wage and, and employment policy mix. And uh, as the vulgar Marxists like to say, it is no accident um, that uh, the better educated favor these kinds of policies because they're not the losers. <laughs> I would push back on that just for a second because, you know, to some extent, I think a lot of people have this instinct, but well, the better educated have higher wages and yet they are still advocating for higher taxes that hurt them, right? So I think there uh, is the sense that class politics is dead in the U.S. because look, the educated people, there's a very strong income education gradient in the U.S., so educated people make more money. Um, But look, you know, there can't be any class politics because they are voting for higher taxes. In some sense, uh, the educated voters are voting against their material interests. But our point is that they actually historically have been somewhat okay with that. What they really don't like are interventions that create a pre-tax and transfer earnings distribution where they're not rewarded. So I don't think it's pure vulgar materialism. I do think there's like an interesting sort of debate about like what are material interests and sort of Marxists and neoclassicals have kind of like both taken for granted that it's obvious that material interest is like the after tax income that you get. But once you like unpack that into like maybe you actually care differently about the income that comes in as a paycheck versus the income that you keep after the paycheck, maybe that's not so clear. And like maybe there's actually material interests are a more complicated bundle than just the after tax income that you get. Add to that, Suresh, so, I, mean, I think you and I would both agree that to some extent there's, there's a certain status and power to saying, oh, I earned all this much in the quote unquote free you know, market. And now with my generosity, I'm willing to engage in redistribution and you can tax me. And so at some level of a sort of small R republicanism, where we sort of all can look on each other as equals, I think that there's the status and power of somebody making a lot of money in the free market and then, you know, handing some over in taxes to those losers, quote unquote, 
that still confers, I think, a pretty high status. And then even more, you know, some sense of generosity. Vulgar materialism is maybe something that we're trying to push against a little bit. The standard economic model of redistribution, the quote unquote losers should never want pre-distribution because it's causing them to work more, which we always think is a negative. They would much prefer the, the, the free handout. The standard model is something that we're in some sense critiquing. You had to think of that like historical and moral component of what goes into like what people value. I think there is a component of it that definitely goes beyond the amount of money on a paycheck. There's a lot of things about a job that you might like that are not well targeted by the tax and transfer system, but are just property of a good labor market. Better treatment by your manager, you might have more autonomy on the job, and those things complement the wages, but are not sort of really addressed by the tax and transfer system. They're really a property of good jobs. Larry Bartels, who wrote some very um, tough critiques of Tom Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Frank's thesis was that uh, white working class people were voting against their material interests by voting for Republicans. And uh, Bartels suggested we should also ask, what's the matter with Connecticut? Why is these rich people voting Democrat? It's not something that uh, has attracted the same amount of attention, but you know, it's interesting that you bring it up. I don't read Frank's book quite that, that way. I think Frank is pretty tough on the Democrats in particular about NAFTA. But, you know, I think, you know, what's the matter with Connecticut? To us, it's not surprising in the sense that Democrats are, if you think about some of the policies of the 1990s, it's somewhat Connecticut friendly. You have the deregulation of the financial industry, which uh, we know has helped very well-educated people who now are attracted uh, into finance. There's been trade liberalization, which doesn't hurt the upper class in, in Connecticut either. You know, when Democrats are in charge, the uh, marginal tax rate tends to be in the high 30s, low 40s. When Republicans are in, in charge, the top marginal rate goes more towards the you know, mid or low 30s. But it's not as though, you know, Democrats are soaking the rich, not 90 percent uh, marginal tax rate. I don't find it that mysterious why well-educated people in Connecticut vote Democratic. But you're also saying they have some preference for redistribution, at least the one, the better off ones of a Democratic. Mild, I think. I don't think well-educated people are against redistribution. You know, we sort of find that they haven't been historically. One of the questions we have that kind of reliably goes back is like, tax me more. The relatively educated are more okay with paying taxes. It's a small effect, but relative to less educated people, it's sort of there. And I really think that there's been this sense in very modern <laughs> politics you know, you know, much of my adult lifetime, where that kind of is the beginning and ending of egalitarian policies. If you're willing to vote for higher taxes, there's just been the sense that, well, you know, more educated people, even at this point, you might even get that wealthier people are okay with taxes. Oh my gosh, what a puzzle. Like, how are these people voting against their economic interests? That is in part misleading because there are these other suite of policies of egalitarian policies, namely pre-distribution, that the educated don't seem to like. And so that's sort of, you know, pushing back a little bit on this idea that class politics are dead. Yes, if you if you're if the end all and be all is just, you know, the top marginal tax rate, then you can indeed say, wow, this looks very puzzling. You know, why would wealthy people or, or in our case, educated people uh, be voting to hurt themselves? But when you look at a broader suite of egalitarian policies, I think it's a little bit less mysterious. As for tax increases, we had Bill Clinton when he was first in office in 1993, Joe Biden 30 years later, a little bit, not very much. So, I mean, the Democrats will raise taxes on rich people once every 30 years. <laughs> it's not much of a... And as I'm saying, you know, it's like four or five percentage points at most at the top marginal rate. I mean, these are 
you know, so I don't think these are changing in any great material sense, uh, the, the take-home pay or disposable income of wealthy people. That was the voice of Ileana Kuziemko. I'm speaking with her and fellow economist Suresh Naidu. To explain what was going on, you pay some attention to the rise of the DLC. Um, a lot of people may not be familiar with that history anymore. So um, yeah, remind us of who the DLC were, where they came from, and what they did to the party. The DLC, especially among economists, uh, it's not a well-known group. Certainly, I would think you know political scientists would know would know that, especially Americanists. So I think the DLC grows out of uh, some frustrating Democratic presidential showings in the 70s and 80s, uh, where the Democrats, you know, lose badly at the presidential level. Although I should say this whole time they are controlling Congress. So it's definitely sort of a nationally presidentially focused um, effort is my sense. But yes, I mean, the idea being that, you know, what can the Democrats do to capture uh, the presidency to increase majorities? And there was a sense that it needed to break with its uh, New Deal foundations. It was a generally a very white Southern group. And this is maybe not surprising, given that was the group that had recently slipped away from the Democratic coalition. They would be the sort of example of third way politics in the U.S., definitely more uh, conservative on education. And in fact, you know, as we show in the paper, they're sort of just more conservative on everything. They would find themselves on almost every position somewhere between the quote unquote old style New Deal Democrats and the Republicans. And, you know, some of the leaders of this group, uh, before he became president of the U.S., Bill Clinton was president of the DLC. Some of the famous members would have been Clinton, Al Gore, Gary Hart, Joe Lieberman, these sort of uh, more center or conservative uh, Democrats would have been part of this group. And I should say, like, they're, they're huge. So by the 90s, half of the members of Congress and the Democrats, like, identify as DLC. They have joined what was called the New Democrat Caucus, and that was the DLC-affiliated uh, caucus in the House and the Senate. So by the 90s, uh, I think they sort of ideologically can declare victory and that they their agenda, especially when Bill Clinton's president, given that he's a member a founding member and a former president of the DLC. It's sort of hard to say there's much of a, a split anymore because they just couldn't declare victory by that point. We should uh, be fair and note that Hillary actually had a, a, a decent hand in, in creation of the DLC. Uh, she um, co-wrote Bill's speech to their one of their early conventions. Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah, our focus of the papers, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, in part because there still is like an old Democrat that we can sometimes compare in a in a statistical manner, you know, who preferred, you know, which types of voters preferred representatives of the old party versus representatives of the new party. By like, oh, wait, it's Hillary versus Obama. And I don't think there's any argument that either one of them are sort of old style. They're both in spirit, new Democrats. Although I should say that Obama at some point was on the list of DLC members, but then during the 08 campaign, or he said, oh, no, I and asked his, for his name to be removed. So sort of interesting that even back then, you know, there still was a sense that, you know, I think Obama wanted to run to Hillary's left. Yeah, whatever that meant. Lily Geismer wrote about this. Yes, Lily was super helpful. Uh, we, we contacted her early in the project. She was uh, really fun to talk to and, and helpful. So the change in the nature of the party's base was important. Uh, could you describe that? Well, that's what we try to focus on in the paper is to say, I mean, our argument, which, you know, is uh, just that, just, just an argument, is that the voters responded to this. 
that the DLC was, I think, rather explicit, trying to like pick up more educated and more suburban voters. And we argue that, you know, they succeeded and that it, you know, isn't some huge mystery as to why the party became a more educated party. In part, that was the DLC's goal and, and they were successful in it. So, yeah, we are trying to explain through changes in the party's policy and changes in the party's leadership this educational realignment that, you know, we date back to the 70s. The strongest form of our argument would be that the DLC and groups like it began to change the party in the 70s. The DLC itself is formed in 85, but they're sort of precursors. The people that eventually would go on to found the DLC were already in Congress in the 70s. They began to change the the types of economic policies that the party follows. You might think of the deregulation under Carter, the austerity and high interest rates under Carter, the union unfriendliness. Carter was not an ally of, of organized labor. That all begins in the 70s. And so, yeah, I think we're just sort of saying that, well, what did you expect? The goal of this group was to pick up more educated and suburban uh, voters, and, and they were successful. I should, we should also add that it's not that clear they were wrong. We don't find that the turn to the DLC like cost them votes. It really just seemed to switch the types of voters that made up the party. Over these decades, the country has generally gotten more educated. So how does that figure into your analysis? We suspect that maybe we were sitting there back in the 70s and 80s and trying to think about how to advise the Democratic Party for the future. It wasn't a bad bet, right? Because the country was becoming incredibly more educated in the 50s, 60s and 70s. You know, they were educating themselves. The country was educating itself at a really rapid pace. But then right around the 80s and thereon, yes, we've become more educated largely as older generations have died off. But that pace of getting more educated has really slowed down, both relative to the U.S., his own you know, 20th century history, and also relative to other countries. So that's sort of like a mystery in labor economics as to why, despite the super high returns to college education, the rate of college going since the 80s, the rate of growth has slowed quite a bit. The DLC strategy would have been even more successful had that pace continued, but it, it really slowed after the 80s. We're not as educated as I think most people would have guessed if you were just sitting there in 1980 and projecting forward 30, 40 years. Well, it did get a lot more expensive. One other point on that is that we're always like looking kind of like within an age bucket. So it's like education kind of relative to the average education of the people born in the same age bin as you. So we think it's much more like a proxy for class than it is any effect of like education per se. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point to make. This is all sort of relative to people your age. We don't think it's purely just a generational story. Now, you make an additional point that the nature of the politicians, the Democratic politicians has changed some. They're less working class and more Ivy League. That's true. Yeah, very, very strikingly. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, we sort of see it sort of it works in both directions that, you know, back in the uh, immediate post-war period, uh, it's exactly flipped, as sort of you might guess, Republicans are from the lily white uh, Ivy Leagues, much more higher rates than Democrats. I mean, like both of them are obviously uh, senators and House and House representatives are much more educated and, and much more coming from these elite organizations, the population at large, of course, and that remains true throughout. But yeah, around the 70s, that converges. Republicans have fallen in their Ivy League share and Democrats have increased. And now it's the reverse, that Democrats are 20 percentage points, roughly, if I, if, 
if I'm remembering correctly, more likely to come from an Ivy League institution um, than are uh, their Republican counterparts. We don't look at the direct effect of that on, you know, whether Ivy League people are less popular with with less educated voters, in part because we can't ever look. Unfortunately, we don't know the when we look at um, who your opponent was in a race. If you lost that race, you're kind of lost to history. So we can't look at whether uh, in an election, an Ivy League uh, degree is helpful or hurtful to working class votes. But uh, it's just another piece of evidence, we think, that the party has gone in a different direction in terms of the types of politicians it recruits. I know you don't really address this in your paper, but uh, since this is radio, I can ask you. <laughs> Do you share your um, your profession's skepticism towards pre-distribution uh, and prefer the redistribution? Or do you think maybe we should look at some of those old pre-distribution ideas again? There's definitely a distaste for industrial policy, although that's not shared universally. In modern empirical economics, Rush, would, would you would agree with that, I'm guessing, yeah? Yeah, I, I do think there's something in more generally in economics that is since the financial crisis, there's been kind of like it's partly a generational thing. It's partly like new methods and different emphases that it's a much more open place in terms of like policies, options on the table than it say it was during like the Larry Summers heyday, for example. The discipline as a whole is not nearly as unified in its dislike for predistribution as it was. This is pure speculation on, on the history of intellectual thought in the profession. I suspect that the generation of economists who had no experience in sort of the central planning that was required during World War II, maybe that was part of the distaste for pre-distribution. I, again, just purely speculating, but, you know, at the turn of sort of mid-century, you would have had all these economists who cut their teeth during the essentially central planning. of. You mean like Milton Friedman? more impact on some than others. But the idea that, you know, you just kind of had to like shape the economy to social ends probably wasn't so foreign to a lot of economists in the 50s and 60s that you basically look, there's going to be these, you know, huge interests, whether it's business versus uh, labor and farmers as a sector and that there had to be some coordination of these large sectors for social ends made total sense to people who grew up in that era. And then, of course, you know, as generations pass, the generation of economists who were prominent during the 90s and, and, for example, wouldn't have had any of that experience. They would have been too young. And so I don't know. I'm just speculating as to why it sort of fell out of favor. Because, you know, I would say that the economists of the 50s would have thought that some pre-distribution was, was natural, and, that I, and I think part of it is also like the 1970s stagflation, correctly or incorrectly. There's definitely something about the generic crisis of the 1970s that makes some of the more neoliberal ideas on the table look more attractive. Or look inevitable. Okay, and then to uh, also force you into speculation that's um, perhaps um, outside your comfort zone. <laughs> this all seems to be running its course. We have the Biden administration flirting some with industrial policy. But this whole DLC package, after the financial crisis, but now after 10 years of, you know, for a lot of the working class, fairly crappy economic performance, that all that stuff just has um, none of its appeal or a little of its appeal. The whole DLC package looks very tired. It looks something dated of 20 or 30 years ago. Do you agree with that? And then where do we go from here? I think it's probably going to turn out to be more durable than, than maybe you would hope. 
Yeah, I think it'll come back, actually, when it has a political constituency that really wants it. So, for example, in like tech libertarians will be a constituency that if they could get more organized and like a less run by kind of the extremely wealthy, then you could imagine that there would be a a kind of similar constellation about beliefs about the market rewards merit and we don't want to get in the way of like talent. And so we should get government out of the way because it can't do anything competently. And it's largely off the table because it doesn't have a political constituency these days, but that could come back. I also would say, just to follow up on what Suresh said, and to be sort of just realistic, I don't know that pre-distribution is even a good idea with a government that seems as dysfunctional as, as the current U.S. federal government. I wonder if you sort of need a more less polarized, uh, more functional uh, federal government to actually, you know, do any of this in a competent manner. That was Ileana Kuziemko, professor of economics at Princeton. I've been speaking with her and Suresh Naidu of Columbia. Their paper on the topic can be found on the National Bureau of Economic Research's website, nber.org. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this Class War, a cover of the Dills original by Mission of Burma. Till next week, bye.